Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got Dan Watkins, Ian McLaughlin, Peter Johnson, John Farben. I'm Hazel Person. I got an absolute bumper of an episode today. It's the return of Nerd Court. That's <laughs> mastermind. What is it? Yeah. <laughs> and Nerd Court is actually myself versus John taking on the case of Armageddon. It's going to be Bayhem in the studio. It's also the final round of Nerd of the Mastery Mind, as Dan quizzes me on The West Wing. And then we're going to conclude with a massive spoilery discussion of Solo. So if you haven't seen that, don't listen to that bit. But let's kick things off with a film buff or film bluff quiz. So this is a quiz where we have all come with three pieces of movie or entertainment trivia. But we have made one of them up. So it's our job and also your job, if you'd like to, to work out which one is the bluff. Dan, let's have you first, please. Okay. well, you mentioned that we're going to have a big spoilery discussion of Solo later on in the episode. My film buff or film bluff this episode is about Solo filming locations. Mm. Two of these are true and one is not. Number one, the planet Savarine, which is the sandy, beachy planet at the end of the film, was shot in the Canary Islands. Number two, the planet Vandor, which is where they have the train heist near the start, was filmed in the northeast of Italy. And number three, the planet Castle, where they go to the spice mines, was filmed just outside London. Hmm. Like a geography quiz as well as a film quiz. Yes, it is. Castle is probably true because out of all the locations, it had the least kind of mountainous features and things. It was kind of like a set piece in a set. So I think that one is true. Uh, Canary Islands. I should clarify that all three of these would be location shoots. So not necessarily Italian film studios or London film studios Mm. or anything like that. These are all locations. Mm. I still think that the London one is true. It's probably shot in a quarry uh, Mm -hmm. very near London. Do we know whether any of Solo was filmed in England? It, yeah, Pinewood yeah. was um, where they were, but I'm trying to think on location. I know that because my friend's flatmate was a set designer on Solo and refused to divulge any information about it whatsoever. <laughs> What's the point What's of the point that? Point having a like that? <laughs> Despite <laughs> me trying to get my friend drunk. <laughs> so there was, there was Despite the... me sleeping with him. <laughs> <laughs> so there was the Canary Islands. What was the other location? Um, Vandor, the mountainy planet with the train heist, was the northeast of Italy. Hmm. It was a bit cold for the northeast of Italy, wasn't it? It was a bit icy. Yeah. As our resident skiing expert, Peter, is that <laughs> a? Uh... I'm just wondering whether it was actually filmed anywhere. I was thinking the same thing. That a train section was the was the most mm. CGI bit in it. Is there anything real of mm. that sequence? That's a good point. Be the bluff. Mm. Yep, sold me. That's yep. a lie. I'm going, I'm going mm. for that one. I'm going for the yep. train. Yeah. The Canary Islands is true. Okay. It was Fuerteventura. Yeah. Oh, I've been oh, there. So yes. Yeah. Bit windy. The Italian one is also true. Uh, it was the Dolomite Mountains. Okay. And that means the third one is false. They did do some location shooting just outside London, but that was for the planet Corellia that we see right at the start of the film. Everything else, including the Spice Mines of Kessel, was done in the studio at Pinewood. Mm. Oh. Yeah. You let yourself get persuaded there, Ian. I did. <laughs> Very good. I've got one. Okay. Okay. The theme is random. In the film The Wizard of Oz, Toto the Dog earned the same weekly salary as Judy Garland. Okay. Okay. In the film Spider Man, the spider used actually was not a Black Widow spider, it was a different spider, which they drugged and then painted to look like a Black oh, Widow right. spider. Right. Why was it important to drug it? Uh, to keep it still, I imagine well, you get brushed. When you paint it. If you try, if you try painting a spider. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because the Black Widows were just too uh, aggressive and angry. Ah, and okay. in the film Titanic, the sketch that Jack draws of the naked lady is drawn by James Cameron. Mm-hmm. And drawing the picture is actually James Cameron's hands. Okay. So two of those are true. One is false. I'm fairly sure he drew. James Cameron's mm. is yeah, true. I'm not sure before. if they're his hands. 
I would like to believe that James Cameron, for continuity through the rest of the film, used digital technology to replace DiCaprio's hands with his own in every shot. <laughs> right. Just just to make it yeah. all seamless. I think I think his hands are James Cameron's. I'm pretty sure that's true. I know he he definitely drew the picture. Yeah. yeah. On my list of about seven unused things for Buff or Bluff, <laughs> one of them is to do with the Wizard of Oz mm. and how much the dog got paid. Yeah. <laughs> I like know the answer. Yeah. But the thing I know is that the munchkins were paid about half per week what the dog was paid. Mm. So the Could dog we... was paid like $150 and they were paid like $80 or $90. Yeah. Could we have a moment actually for the, the final munchkin died this week? We, we lost you. our last munchkin. I, I killed. It's all your fault. Yeah. I mentioned the Wizard of Oz. And as happens to me surprisingly regularly, immediately after mentioning that, the last munchkin died. You're like the fairy of death. I am. I am the god of geek doom. (laughs) Was it one of those situations with Judy Garland where she took a minimal salary, but then she took a percentage of the film's Pretty much unknown. She was a child. Yeah. And And she she was off her tits all the way through it, so she didn't know what she was getting paid. I would still probably go for that one, though, because... Mm, I don't know, the Ian's spider one. definitely made up the spider one, I'm sorry. Well, I could understand them using a different spider rather than a Black Widow because Black Widow mm-hmm. spiders are ridiculously poisonous. It's just the painting bit I'm not sure about. <laughs> well, how do they make it look like a Black Widow? Or is it just CG? Black Widows are black spiders and they've yeah. got red and blue markings. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. hence the Spider-Man outfit. I don't remember, or big thing might have been a Black Widow. It's trying to confuse it with comic bookness because there's a Black Widow comic book character. Who in, isn't a spider? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and has never bitten Tom Holland or Tobey Maguire, <laughs> as far as we know. So, what are you going for? Are you going for James spider. Cameron's hands? No, the, the painted spider, or, yes. or Toto getting the same fee as Dorothy Judy Garland? Toto, I Toto. Yeah, I, yeah. I think Spider Man is bollocks. Yeah, despite painted the spider, so we've got two for Spider Man and two for uh, Judy Garland and Toto. Well, James Cameron's true. Yes, yeah. it was him that used the picture and drew. And Spider-Man is true. (laughs) Damn it. And uh, uh, Toto actually was paid $125 a week and Judy Garland got uh, $500 and Munchkins got less than half of what the dog got. But they didn't complain because they couldn't reach the complaint (laughs) 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 count. Very good. My three are the Pixar movie Coco is retitled in Brazil as Coco means shit in Brazilian. <laughs> Say that again. The Pixar movie Coco yeah. is retitled in Brazil as Coco means shit there. That's not the new title. I was going to say, like, it didn't no. like come out as like Coco means shit. It, okay, it came out something else. The, 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 the title is Coco means shit there. Yeah. yeah. What? Yeah. Are, you, are, are you just saying the word Coco? Was oh, I see what you shit? mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or was okay. it Coco right. being shit? Let, let me just do it Coco again, but I'll shit? say because instead of ours, and then it made perfect sense. Okay. Okay. The Pixar movie Coco is retitled in Brazil because Coco means shit there. Because Coco means shit there is a really odd title for a film. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm never having a bedtime drink there. <laughs> Number two. Adrian Edmondson was cast in The Last Jedi because director Rian Johnson is a big fan of Bottom and even shot an episode with his school friends of Bottom. And the third one is Arnold Schwarzenegger was paid approximately $12,623 for every one of the 700 words he said in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. The Ryan Johnson one is definitely true because I've seen him confirm that on Twitter. To spoil the fun, the Terminator 2 one is also definitely true because I remember reading it somewhere at the time. I therefore believe the Coco yeah, one to be false. Hang on, but I know the Coco one's real because I've been there <laughs> to and, Brazil and had a cup of shit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I believe your cup of shit story is a cup of shit. Yes. I'm still going with that one. I'll go for that as well. Coco beans come from Brazil. Surely they wouldn't call them shit cacao. Yeah, they, they wouldn't call it cocoa. Uh, but we call shit caca here. Babies do. <laughs> Was it 700 different words? Or like? Are you suggesting they used dubbing technology to just repeat any time he said a word more than once? Yeah. To cut down on his salary? Imagine the deal was done by the amount of words in the script, not how many times he actually says it. If it's true. Right, we're going for... Coco. 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 I'm going to go for Schwarzenegger just for fun. Okay. I know I'm wrong. The bluff is Schwarzenegger. So Ian is right. Ian, you're storming around here. (laughs) 
Schwarzenegger was actually paid $21,479 for every word. Twice what I said. And mine is about the shit Star Trek actors starred in when they were not starring in Star Trek. Mm. It's fair to say that their careers outside of Star Trek haven't been that illustrious. So I have three other projects that Star Trek cast members worked on. Number one, William Shatner starred in the film Incubus, in which he visits a town which has to fight an incubus which turns into an evil goat. This is the only horror film shot entirely in the international language, Esperanto. Number two. Lynn and Nimoy starred in that pointy Lin Who's Lynn Nimoy? Lynn and Skinnard. Lynn and Snickers. Lynn and Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy starred in that pointy eared bastard, an Italian spaghetti western where he played an evil sheriff. And finally, DeForest Kelly starred in Night of the Leapers, where he played a local college president who tries to solve the overpopulation of rabbits by injecting them with a new drug, which only leads to giant human-eating mutant rabbits. <laughs> now, I know for a fact that Ian has seen that I film, have seen haven't that you? Film, yes. <laughs> it, is, it is marvellous. It's all done with the rabbits very close to the camera and people very far away. It's brilliant. <laughs> now, there was a South Park episode a few years ago which did something very similar with giant guinea pigs that escaped from Peru. And the point of the episode was all of those Peruvian pan flute bands that you see in city centres are actually there for a very important reason of keeping away these giant guinea pigs. They all get taken (laughs) away to prison camps and the guinea pigs invade the world. And I am wondering now whether that was in fact a homage to this DeForest Kelly film. I can't remember DeForest Kelly, but then again, it's a long time since I saw a film, so I still think that's true. I've heard something about William Shatner and Esperanto before. Mm. I can't remember the connection, but I'm willing to make the leap or the leapers and say that's true the second one sounds so obviously like john so, made it yeah. up what, you that, mean? that pointed ear bastard can it be a trap well there is a long tradition of spaghetti westerns with the word bastard in them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. bastard yes um that bastard the good the bad and the bastard <laughs> make him up now yeah. this uh, full of bastards but that that pointy ear bastard <laughs> yeah i'm not sure whether that's the original title whether it was retitled after lennon nimoy leonard nimoy Leonardo Nimoy. Leonardo Nimoy. Leonardo Nimoy. Came to fame. Yeah, this is the improv bit. It's bullshit. I'm, I'm going to go for Leonardo Nimoy being bullshit. I'm going to have to go for that because it defies all logic. Yeah. I want it to be true, badly. Leonardo Nimoy. <laughs> yeah, that one is the that one is the made up one. Yes. <laughs> um, Did you seriously expect us to believe that? Yes. There's <laughs> um, always hope. Night of the Leapers was pretty much the only thing DeForest Kelly did after Star Trek, other than the movies. Mm. He pretty much retired. And uh, Incubus was the first horror film and only the second film shot entirely in Esperanto, which was designed to make the film more accessible to an international market, <laughs> not realising that no fucker spoke Esperanto other than, you know, 10,000 nerds. William Shatner didn't know. Mm. Um, so the cast didn't speak Esperanto. They learnt it phonetically, and apparently it sounds awful if you are an actual Esperanto yeah. speaker. Which other sci-fi series famously references Esperanto? Firefly. Nope. There's, um, there's a ship called the Esperanto in something, isn't there? But I can't remember what. Well, what I'm thinking of is uh, Red Dwarf, because all the levels, if you notice, say Nivolo, Nivolo 46 or Nivolo 47, oh. that's the Esperanto word for level. Mm. And some of the signage in the ship is in Esperanto. Super nerd. <laughs> <laughs> and that pointy-eared bastard is something that made me giggle at two o'clock this morning. <laughs> so what, why was there a pointy-eared bastard with you at two o'clock this morning? <sighs> I get lonely. <laughs> Just make Louise wear the uh, plastic ears <laughs> and sing the ballad of Bilbo Baggins. Mm. Maybe. <laughs> well, that would be a logical job. Well, that's why I want you to do it. Mm. Prime timeline or <laughs> timeline. Louise, <laughs> I'm coming. <laughs> no, he do it to me, Liddy with Jubini. John. <laughs> Right. Um, I had a very entertaining morning coming up with my film Buff or Bluff because mine is all about Chris Hemsworth quacks. <laughs> Timber. Which um, listeners to previous episodes will know that I have a bit of affection towards. 
All right, number one. It was Chris Hemsworth who got Ron Howard involved in In the Heart of the Sea and not the other way around. Is that a film? It in, is in the Heart it's of the Sea. It's yeah. about a whale. Yeah. Oh, right. His first US role was in Star Trek as George Kirk, James T. Kirk's father, obviously. He was only in the film briefly, but in a leaked email, David Lindelof expressed regret at casting Chris Pine instead of Chris Hemsworth in the main role. And in 2006, he placed fifth in Dancing with the Stars Australia. I think Dancing with the Stars is true. I'm sure I've seen something about him being in that, but I don't know what the place was, whether he won or lost or not. So he was a big star in Australia before he... Could have been in Home and Away, but I don't know what the other Hemsworths were doing, Mm. because that could be a sneaky bluff and it could have been one of the lesser Hemsworths. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Star Trek one, I can believe, is his first major Hollywood role, as he was more or less unknown when he was cast as Thor. I don't know whether they'd filmed Cabin in the Woods by that point, but they didn't release it until after Thor had come out. They, they filmed Cabin mm. in the Woods first and held on to it for a year for mm. various reasons. But Star Trek was the first time I'd seen him in anything. So I can believe that one. The leaked email about Chris Pine is in there as well. Oh, right. And I don't see him as Captain Kirk. Chris Pine's a very good Kirk. Maybe they got the wrong Chris. Maybe they get confused like everyone else does. <laughs> yeah, the, the Ron Howard thing, if you're trying to make a big film about whaling ships in the open ocean, I don't know whether Ron Howard's the first name that comes to mind. I don't think Ron Howard's the first name that comes to mind for anything. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I don't. But he's also expected he's, to be competent wherever he Yeah, he's just consistently yeah. good. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't, like, get me Ron Howard unless... You're doing a Happy Days reunion. Hey... <laughs> the Johns. <laughs> Any, uh, I'll go with the Ron Howard one. I'm going to go with the, the the Ron Howard one as well. Okay. I don't know. Actually, the Dancing with the Stars one. You'd think, with all of the things he's been in since, that somebody would have dug up footage and turned yeah. it into a gif or something. Clips so, would be all over the place. I think would have. Yeah. I've changed my mind. I'm going Dancing with the Stars. Okay. I think that was a lesser mm-hmm. Hemsworth. Okay. Would you take a lesser Hemsworth? Like if Liam knocked on your door and said you can climb me like a shrub. <laughs> they do They do get progressively less tall as the Hemsworths go on. Because Luke Hemsworth in Westworld, he's Luke no taller than Tessa Thompson. Tiny, yeah. by comparison. Liam's very small. Being pruned. Um, mm. I like that you're thinking about it. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm going to be thinking about it for about five minutes, I think. Um. <laughs> no, it's only Chris for me. And uh, Liam's been with Miley Cyrus, and that's a bit gross. Uh, what was the other one? There's Dancing with the Stars, Australia, placed fifth in 2006. And there was Damon Lindelof uh, saying that he wished he'd cast Chris Hemsworth as the main role. I'm going to go with that one, because mm-hmm. I don't believe the email. I've been talked into Dancing with the Stars. Okay. I'm going for Star Trek as well. Okay. It's true about Ron Howard. So um, he was actually directing Chris Hemsworth in Rush when um, he came to them with the script. So that's true. It is true about Dancing with the Stars. And I'd encourage a good YouTube session. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fun this morning uh, watching him do backflips. He's very flexible. <laughs> he, he, he does do some good dance moves in Ghostbusters, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a really good comedian. I don't know whether Thor Ragnarok came about because somebody mm. saw him in Ghostbusters and went, actually, this guy's funny. Um, he's actually very funny in his training videos. So he's a very mm, magical He's a very person. funny when you turn up in his, at his house in the middle of the night with some chloroform and a... Um, the restraining order says, mm. suggest otherwise. Yeah. Uh, but no, I made up the thing about Star Trek. I'm sure they were perfectly happy with Chris Pine. Just me, I think, wanting more Hemsworth <laughs> on screen. <laughs> now it's time for the return of Nerd Court. So for this, I'm going to hand over to your Right Honourable Judge Daniel to explain the proceedings. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, welcome to Nerd Court. We are gathered here today to hear the case of Michael Bay's 1998 guilty pleasure masterpiece, Armageddon. For the prosecution, John Farthing, and for the defence, Hazel Burton. Prosecution and defence, your opening arguments, please. May I start by complaining that a judge that refers to the film as a guilty pleasure masterpiece may not be entirely... You may not. Okay. I will add that all evidence will be 
noted down fairly and objectively in my Nerdfest branded notebook, now available on redbubble.com. <laughs> in that case, I will proceed with my opening statement. In summer 1998, the world saw the release of a film that combined cutting-edge special effects, great actors, and an original screenplay which explored what would happen if an asteroid was about to collide with the Earth. Two months after Deep Impact, Armageddon was released. (laughs) A film that is two and a half hours long, but does not appear to have a single shot lasting longer than four seconds. A film that suggests the genes of Bruce Willis could produce the genes of Liv Tyler. (laughs) A film whose leaps of logic and narrative suggest that a large proportion of the nine, yes, nine writers, had ingested illegal substances before putting pen to paper. And worst of all, a film that suggested that Michael Bay could do movies set in space. A film that led directly to the Transformers franchise. Your Honour, Armageddon deserves to belong in nerd hell. Thank you, Prosecution and Defence. Your opening statement, please. Your Honour and members of the jury, I am here today fighting not only for myself but also for the very soul of action movies and their relationship with the fans who care about them so much. Armageddon is a goddamn cinematic masterpiece which I will seek to prove with every fibre of my being. The opposing counsel is likely to throw arguments your way such as this doesn't make any sense and it's all a bunch of smotty manure. Well, Your Honour, the best things in life make no sense. Circular pizzas delivered in square boxes, deal or no deal. To judge the film for its lack of a grounding in reality is to argue against the very magic of movie making. And I hope by the end of these three pieces of evidence that are being brought in front of you today that you will side with magic. Thank you very much, Defence. Uh, we will now hear the main bulk of our arguments. Uh, prosecution, you will present the first of your three pieces of evidence. Defence, you will be able to have a rebuttal for each. My first point, sir, is bollocks science. Yes, I accept it as a film and films are not always scientifically accurate. But the film Armageddon takes this beyond nonsense into levels of bullshit that have never been seen before on a cinematic screen, to the extent that NASA shows the film as part of its management training programme. Prospective managers are asked to find as many inaccuracies in the movies as they can, and have found at least 168 (laughs) impossible things during the screening of the film. Have you seen the disclaimer? At the end of the movie it says... NASA's cooperation and assistance does not reflect an endorsement of the contents of the film or the treatment of the characters within. Yes, gentlemen of the jury, do not, do not distract the prosecution at work. You will note in the film that every time a bit of asteroid enters the Earth's atmosphere, it destroys a major city, yet only 0.3% of the world is actually covered by cities. What are the odds? What are the odds indeed? Prosecution, do you have the odds? No, but it's... Argument dismissed. (laughs) Okay. Carry on. Secondly, the approach of landing on an asteroid, putting a nuclear weapon in there, and blowing the asteroid in half is, frankly, nonsensical. They land in a large ravine, which is deeper than they needed to drill to put the nuclear bomb in there, meaning they did not need to drill in any way whatsoever. (laughs) For the nuclear bomb to be effective the bomb would need to be a billion times stronger than the biggest ever detonated on Earth. The asteroid is the size of Texas. At the time, the most powerful telescope in the world, the Hubble Space Telescope, would only realistically have been able to detect the asteroid at a distance of 8 billion miles away, by which time it would already have been too late for Bruce Willis to do anything about it. We would be dead Within 30 seconds of the asteroid hitting the Earth, the asteroid would kill everybody on Earth, reducing them to globules of fat. I would suggest that is preferable to having to sit through two and a half hours of that crap. Finally on science, the most obvious thing of all. They have astronauts, they have drillers. One of these things requires a bachelor's degree in engineering, biological science, physical science, computer science or mathematics followed by at least three years of related professional experience obtained after degree completion, followed by a two-year training programme. For the other, you should have completed an apprenticeship, although it is not compulsory. (laughs) I suggest that one of these things may be easier to achieve than the other. Thank you, Prosecution. Defence, your rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honour. 
the opposing counsel has made some very respectable arguments about the lack of plausibility in hiring oil drillers and training them to be astronauts in 12 days. And it's actually true that Ben Affleck asked Michael Bay on set, why is it easier to train oil drillers to become astronauts than to train astronauts to become oil drillers? To which Michael Bay told him to shut the fuck up. And whilst I applaud this sentiment towards Ben Affleck on any occasion, (laughs) I would like to add some depth to Bay's response. The fact that they're not astronauts adds so much more to the enjoyment of the film. Harry Stamper is the John McCain of oil drillers. Wherever they said it couldn't be drilled, this guy drilled it. But they're huge underdogs when it comes to being astronauts, which is a brilliant film technique to get you to care even more about the characters. Secondly, it means we get several very funny training montages, which all the best films should include. Thirdly, it creates some thrilling tension between the oil drillers and the actual astronauts flying the mission. And fourthly, it means that we, the audience, learn what's going on as they learn what's going on. If this was a situation that NASA astronauts had been training for for years, they'd know down to the tiniest level of detail what they needed to do. Unpredictability breeds watchability. The stakes in this movie were always going to be high, but when you see a fish in water doing a swim, it's far less compelling than seeing a fish trying to climb a tree. These guys have very colourful histories, and they are so much more compelling for that reason because they're battling against their own instincts as well as a gigantic asteroid. I also conducted a bit of research into the options we could use should this ever become a real-life event. One such scenario suggested that you could paint one side of the asteroid white and the other side black, and then sunlight itself can help. It will push it ever so gently in another direction. So would you actually rather watch paint dry? (laughs) Or would you rather watch a film where William Fitcher actually has to tell Steve Buscemi to stop riding a nuclear warhead like a motherfucking rocking horse? I'd also like to point out that Armageddon has added at least one physicist to the world. It was a friend of mine's favourite film growing up, and she has admitted to me that it was the inspiration behind her doing a physics degree at university. She was inspired, and you can't underestimate just how important movies like this can inspire people. I'd like to conclude by reading out um, an expert witness statement, if I may, um, from a real-life filmmaker. I'll allow it. Thank you. People go to the movies to be entertained, to be thrilled, to laugh and to cry. In order to do this, I believe the filmmaker should be allowed a certain degree of creative license to enhance the experience for the audience. If people want facts, they can stay at home and watch the Discovery Channel. Don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Thank you, Defence. Prosecution, your second piece of evidence, please. Um, Before I go on to my second piece, could I have a small rebuttal to the previous? There's been no precedent for this in the history of Nerd Court. The one... You may rebut (laughs) in your closing statement. I may rebut in my closing statement. That's what she said. (laughs) Denied. (laughs) Your second piece of evidence. My second piece of evidence, Ben Affleck. What did they do to him? Ben Affleck was an interesting character actor, a writer, a wannabe director, a purveyor of indie films such as Chasing Amy and Goodwill Hunting. He was not a wooden action star. Michael Bay and Armageddon are entirely responsible for the Affleck of the late 90s. An example of what they did to Ben Affleck. Mr Affleck had normal teeth like a normal human man. <laughs> that was not enough for Michael Bay. Michael Bay wanted Hollywood teeth. Partway through shooting Armageddon, Michael Bay sent Ben Affleck to a dentist and spent $20,000 for Mr Affleck to spend eight hours a day in a chair getting Hollywood teeth. Objection. I'm going to question the relevance of this as part of Nerd Court and the Armageddon film in general. As these are teeth in relation to Armageddon, I will allow it. Let's look at Ben Affleck's performance in the film. A man who makes wood look less woody. He is woodier than wood. (laughs) I present my main piece of evidence, the animal cracker scene. (laughs) A scene so disturbing and wrong in which Ben Affleck seduces Liv Tyler by putting animal crackers on her belly, followed by putting animal crackers down her pants and snogging her and touching her boobs while her dad sings a song. (laughs) (laughs) I I can give no further evidence, but I would like you to bear that scene in mind when making your judgment. Was that a clever animal pun? (laughs) Bear that in mind. (laughs) Defence, your rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honour. Now, unfortunately, the opposing counsel has, in this instance, asked me to defend the indefensible. 
Ben Affleck is not a good actor. He has never been a good actor and he never will be. So my argument in this scenario is to point out that the casting of Ben Affleck was simply a tactical ploy to make everyone else look better, (laughs) (laughs) including the animal crackers. You could very much tell that Ben Affleck did not want to be involved in this movie, judging by his half-assed approach to every single line. By comparison, Liv Tyler absolutely shines as the far more interesting half of that couple, and we all identified even more with Bruce Willis when he plays target practice with him in the beginning of the film. Bruce Willis is the hero of this film, not Ben Affleck, and he did a solid job of being so inadequate that we never had to question that. It is therefore a much better film for his casting. Thank you, Defence. Prosecution, your final piece of evidence, please. My final piece of evidence? I could stay awake just to hear you breathing. Watch your smile while you were sleeping, while you're far away and dreaming. I could spend my life in this sweet surrender. I could stay lost in this moment forever. Every moment spent with you is a moment I treasure. Prosecution. Don't want to close my eyes. I urge you to get to the point. <laughs> no further evidence needed. Defence, your rebuttal. I would like to move for a motion to dismiss this piece of evidence on the grounds that taste is subjective. We know this because for some reason people keep casting John Travolta in movies. Just because the opposing counsel isn't a fan of the song, it doesn't mean it isn't any good. It was actually number one in the US for four weeks, and the video went on to become the second most popular video of 1998. So clearly the vast majority of fans enjoyed it, which is ultimately what counts. And in fact, I would recommend the opposing counsel be put in nerd contempt for even bringing this piece of evidence in front of the judge and jury, as it's simply a waste of your valuable time. The song is rooted in truth. It was written by the legendary Diane Warren, She was watching a Barbara Walters interview with James Brolin and Barbara Streisand. Brolin said he missed Streisand when they were asleep, and Warren wrote down the words, I don't want to miss a thing. Now, the best things in life are always going to polarise opinion. It's why we have so many debates about Star Wars. There's much to love, and yet so much that doesn't make any sense. And the fact that Don't Want to Miss a Thing was nominated for both an Oscar for Best Song and also a Razzie for Worst Original Song is testament to that. And we've all heard people screaming the lyrics in karaoke bars, drunk off their tits and failing to get anywhere close to Steven Tyler's masterful gravel. But it's a glorious thing to watch because people really go for it 100%. They don't give a shit about how bad their singing is. They just want to do justice to the meaning of pure devotion. And the world simply needs more of that. Aerosmith somehow managed to capture the magic of the movie Armageddon in that one song. And to argue against it, I'm afraid, Mr. John Farthing, you are missing several things. I don't want to miss one smile. I don't want to miss one... Overruled your closing arguments, please. (laughs) Prosecution. (laughs) Your final statement. My final statement. Yes, Armageddon may be a piece of entertainment and not a scientific film, but when the science is so bad and the plot so ludicrous, surely that is a crime too far. The suggestion that this was made to make it more entertaining, to make it more fun is underlined by the cynicism behind the entire project. The Gatling guns on the trucks that shoot their way out of the spaceship. Mattel had a toy line attached to Armageddon. They told Bay that toy trucks with guns attached to them would sell more, and that is Bay's sole reasoning why there is a giant Gatling gun. I say this is not a creative endeavour, this is a cynical endeavour. Finally, I would like to say in relation to Don't Want to Miss a Thing, it's not only a terrible song, It is now the only song people associate Aerosmith with. Popularity is not an arbiter of taste. I would ask the judge to send Armageddon to nerd hell where it belongs, or alternatively, to an asteroid where it can be blown apart with a 900 million megaton nuclear bomb. Do you agree it does make sense then? No. (laughs) Thank you, Prosecution Defence. Your closing (laughs) statement. My closing statement is uh, very, very short and to the point, Your Honour. Your Honour and members of the jury, I hope I've convinced you that Armageddon has no place in nerd jail. It's one of the best action movies of the 90s, an era that didn't take itself anywhere near as seriously as the following decade. It's big, it's bold, it's fun, and in no way deserves to sit behind bars. Vote for magic. Thank you, Defence. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, would you like any deliberation before I give my final verdict? Just a moment, Your Honour, just to... uh, uh Talk amongst the jury, the um, two men, good and true, sitting here. <laughs> Could you pretend to be 12 men? Okay. So we've got and a bit six angry. Six Peters and six Ian. <laughs> what do you reckon? No, I think it's What do you think, Peter? What, uh, you were swayed by these arguments? The arguments. 
the weird thing about Armageddon is it's both things at the same time, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is both shit and mm-hmm. enjoyable. No. <laughs> See, I disagree Ooh, there. Split jury. See. My problem is that Deep Impact um, still, for me, stands up as a blockbuster. Yes, it's dated, it's, it's, the, it's the late 80s, but it still sort of stands up as a blockbuster. It takes uh-huh. it up a little bit more seriously, um, which I like in my disaster movies. If you had to pick a film to watch, which of the two would you De- watch? A Deep Impact without even one second's thought. Okay. I think um, Armageddon is the biggest pile of shite Where in the universe. I think Armageddon is the thing you'd think, oh, maybe I'll watch that, and then would realise it wasn't such a great idea once you started watching it. That's true. But also, I've got, I've got to think about, you know, it's not my personal opinion here. We've got to go on the evidence. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and Hazel spoke very passionately mm-hmm. as a fan of the film. And I, I think John did kind of abdicate all responsibility with the one other song. <laughs> just giving us the lyrics. That was the laziest approach I've ever seen. And I really like that song. And I would love to eat animal crackers off Liv Tyler's stomach. Or any woman's stomach. Or man's stomach. I just, I like animal crackers. crackers. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen of the jury, thank you for... Your deliberations. I will now give my verdict. Armageddon is a film that is full of bollocks science. And it does have a song that, for better or worse, has perhaps forever altered the reputation of Aerosmith, one of my favourite bands. However, I really enjoy Armageddon. I, <sighs> it is absolute nonsense, but that is what makes it fun. If I saw Armageddon on the television, I would probably stick it on in the background and have a good time watching it. I will concede that Deep Impact is a better film, but Armageddon is a good bit of fun. And for that, Armageddon is not guilty of the evidence levied against it, and I hereby sentence the prosecution to a sentence of watching all Michael Bay's films no! in chronological order <laughs> no! until he overturns his previous verdict against Lost. Oh, here ends Nerd Court. No! Even the Transformers. All five. Are you shit? <laughs> I've been avoiding it for a while, but now it is time for me to go under the hot seat (laughs) (laughs) with my specialist subject, which I really regret choosing because it's The West Wing. It's my favourite TV programme of all time. But then I realised just how many episodes and guest stars there are. Question number one. President Bartlett has three daughters. What are the names of his grandchildren? (sighs) Okay, so Elizabeth has a son and a daughter. Correct. And I haven't watched the later seasons much, but I believe that Ellie has a kid as well. Not according to my research. Hmm. So go with the son and the daughter. Okay. I don't know what they're called. <laughs> they're called Annie and Gus. Oh, I knew Annie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Question number two. Which 2018 Oscar-nominated films feature West Wing cast members? Get Out. Yes. I, Tonya. Yes. How many are there? One more. Oh, okay. Um... And it is a film you've seen. Is it in the best picture? Yes. If it helps, you reviewed it on this very podcast. Oh, well, Bradley Whitford was also in the post. Correct. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, complete the quote. Question three. The man was so fine, he could get any good girl into trouble. Can you guess what his name was? I can't remember that quote at all. The Jackal. Ah, oh, the Jackal. CJ and the Jackal. Question four. <laughs> what is Mrs. Landingham's first name? Dolores. Correct. Number five, deliberately put in because I know you haven't watched the later seasons that much. No. What was the slogan of the Santos McGarry presidential campaign? Um, so Bartlett for America was his slogan, so it can't be that. Um, Santos for president. Nearly. It's for a brighter America. <laughs> okay. Question number six is a behind the scenes question. How long was the longest walk and talk in the show's history? Three minutes. Correct. And uh, bonus point, which episode was it in? Uh, season one, episode five. Season one, episode four, but we'll give you that. Five votes down, sorry. That's the name of the episode. <laughs> give her the bonus point. Uh, question seven. When I watched The West Wing, I would sometimes message you when certain events took place. Yes. I had the same reaction to the ends of season one and season four. What was that reaction? Uh, as in the actual words you used? I'll take an approximation. Um, uh, tears. Um, oh my God, I can't believe this. Who died? 
<laughs> that uh, is more or less correct. Yes, yeah. we'll give you that one. Like, it, holy motherfucker. That was basically <laughs> yeah, it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, question number eight: Which hit musical contains several references to the show? Hamilton. <laughs> yes, because I had to get it in there. That's a point. Um, question number nine, which I only found out when researching this quiz: Which Steven Spielberg film may take place in the West Wing universe? Ooh. Mm. As in a Steven Spielberg film that's already been shot? Yes. Okay. Um... The Flintstones. <laughs> Is this one they mention in the West Wing? I suppose the other way They around. don't mention it in the West Wing. There's a reference to the West Wing contained in something connected to a Steven Spielberg film. Okay. I don't know. So I'm going to guess uh, Ready Player One. <sighs> So close. It was Minority Report. Um, A location in the TV version of Minority Report is called Bartlett Plaza after President Jed Bartlett. Mm. So Minority Report may take place. There's a TV version. There's a TV version. Apparently. Yeah, it's it's basically Blade Runner, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Anyway, question number 10. What is the name of CJ's goldfish? Changes, doesn't it? Uh... The goldfish changes, but I think the name stays the same. I'll, I'll take any one of them then. I'm not sure. I'm going to guess Danny that she named it after who who gave it to her. Oh, that would have been sweet. Mm. Um, apparently, she's called Gail. Gail, yes, mm. that's correct. Yeah. So that is a final score of six points. Mm. Very, very good. Bad, yeah, those were bad. deliberately tricky questions. I think it's time, Dan. Oh no. Yeah. So Daniel went to see a film the other day. And he has some thoughts about it. (laughs) (laughs) How long have you loved the Jurassic Park franchise? When I was about two and a half years old, I was able to say things like Pachycephalosaurus. Mm -hmm. Couldn't say regular words, but I could tell you the names of most species of dinosaur. That does not surprise me. I saw the first Jurassic Park in the cinema when I would have been about five. My head was just full of dinosaurs. That was what I loved. And it made them real. Mm-hmm. And I've loved it ever since. Mega excited for Jurassic World coming out. Really loved it at the time. Got a fair few problems with it now, but I've rewatched it the other week and I still had fun watching it. So mm-hmm. I am a fan and I still love dinosaurs. So with this in mind, uh, tell us what you thought of Jurassic World 2. Would you like the short, non-spoilery version or the lengthy, spoiler-filled version? Well, we decided to call this segment Taking One for the Team. So you went to see it so the rest of us don't have to. So yeah. uh, let's go for the, the spoilery version. Very good. You have been warned, listeners. Not that it matters, because if you have seen the trailer, <laughs> you have seen the entire film. Really? For all the director explicitly said, oh, it gives nothing away, it gives everything away. From the trailer, you know, Jeff Goldblum makes a cameo, there's a volcano on the island, the baddies are selling off dinosaurs, they've made another scary hybrid, and the dinos get out in the real world. That's the film. Weren't we told those clips were all from the first half, and they went somewhere else? There are several shots from the trailer from the final 30 seconds of the film. (laughs) So it was just lying? Yeah. Save yourselves two hours, just watch the trailer. (laughs) And Jeff Goldblum's entire part is in the trailer. Wow. There's maybe a couple of seconds of additional footage of Jeff Goldblum in the film. I really don't want to sound like one of these Star Wars-y, angry, man-baby, killed-my-childhood-type people when I complain about this, but I hated this film. You're not alone, Dan, because some of the reviews I've been reading have been savage. (laughs) There is one major plot point that they have kept back from the trailers. Human cloning. That's what these films are about now. Not dinosaurs. Uh, It's fucking Westworld. Oh, no, I'm not a proper person. Or am I? Maybe I'm not. Existential crises Uh. with a 10-year-old who is a clone. She finds this out in some shockingly bad exposition-y dialogue given by Rafe Spall. And because there's a big scary hybrid chasing it, there's no time to react or process this news. The only other time it's referenced, the dinosaurs have been captured, crammed into this big chamber that is flooding with gas. Bryce Dallas Howard has to make the decision to push the button to open the door to the world or let them all die in that chamber full of gas. And she decides not to press the button. Mm. She lets them die. She has spent the entire film as the head of the dinosaur protection group, despite the fact that the entire first film, she hates dinosaurs. She decides that the only surviving dinosaurs on the planet can just die of gas poisoning in this big chamber. It's the clone who decides behind their backs to press the button and let the dinosaurs out. Because, and I quote, they're alive, 
like me. <laughs> it just sounds awful. Yeah, that was the point where I audibly went, for fuck's sake, in the cinema. <laughs> I wanted to leave this film. I wish I had. I really wish I had. The third film now is clearly going to be about this cloning technology and how it's not about dinosaurs. They're using the technology to make scary monster things that aren't dinosaurs. Why? Because weapons. Because yeah. evil. And they're going to create this Indoraptor. And they need Bryce Dallas Howard so that she can use her handprint to geolocate the final raptor, who everybody, <laughs> including <laughs> the baddies, calls Blue by name. It's a fucking raptor. It's not a dog. Um, <laughs> Blue, because she's the raptor who responds to human commands, can then train the Indoraptor to respond to human commands so it can be a soldier. <sighs> That's the plot. But yeah, um, the reason this human clone is because James Cromwell's character, Richard Lockwood, is John Hammond's business partner from before Jurassic Park. About an hour before it's revealed, you figure out, oh, right, he's cloned his daughter and pretending it's his granddaughter, and that's why they fell out, because he used the technology to make a human, Mm. which is shit. If I wanted a human cloning drama, I wouldn't go and watch Jurassic Park. I would watch Westworld, and up until this week, I didn't really even want to watch Westworld. So, was there anything you didn't like in the movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What what did you like? There must be... Do you take anything from it at all? That is genuinely nothing I liked. (laughs) There's a bit where the Indoraptor lures one of the main goons into its cage, and the camera pans all the way around it, which is when I noticed something that's really, really trivial, but kind of annoyed me. The dinosaurs do not have bums. (laughs) Right. Right? They don't have arseholes. They do not have arseholes. Mm. And we know that they should, because in the first one, we see the Triceratops as poo. Mm. But the CG dinosaurs, now that you can see all of the dinosaur and not just the head and the neck, as with animatronics, they haven't put the bum holes in. Maybe this is why they're so angry. I, I, it's yeah. the only explanation. Why don't they have bum holes? They're animals. They should be biological. Nobody wants to see a swinging T-Rex cock and balls, do they? Mm. This is true. But oh, they're all female, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So... I did like what you put in the messenger thread was, if you like dinosaurs, if you like life and you like happiness, don't go and see this bit. Yeah, I'm not even at the sad bit yet, but there's one bit in particular that just made me almost cry out in despair, not because I was emotionally invested, but as a kind of, what have they done to these films? When they're on the boat, back to the mainland, the humans have managed to escape, with Blue, most importantly, and you see the Brachiosaurus again, who's made it to the end of the pier, all alone looks out plaintively towards them as the entire island is turned to nothingness behind her. She gives out this really sad, mournful cry as slowly and torturously the lava and the ash engulfs her and she just turns to orange and you watch her die. Dinosaurs being alive was my ultimate childhood Mm. dream. Jurassic Park brought that to life. This film quite literally killed it in front of me. As you can tell, I didn't like it. <laughs> How many destroyed childhood memories out of ten? For that, I'd I'd give it a full ten. Oh, it makes me not want to see Jurassic Park again because, in no. case it reminds me of this one, I'm wow. now looking forward to a ten out of ten nerd fest appearing on the poster of the Blu-ray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't wasn't the script written by the guy who directed the first one? Is yeah, you know, right? th- no, this is what they wanted. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been no reshoots. No. Yeah, I mean, this could just be me. Mm. No, I don't think it is, Dan. Well, I mean, it's not reviewed well. Yeah, It's not getting as terrible reviews as it deserves from what you've said. Jurassic World 3 is confirmed with Colin Trevorrow. Yeah, I'm not going to see that. Well, he was going to be directing episode 9, wasn't he, of Star Wars, but he got removed from episode 9. Do you think they saw this? And finally, we're going to have a a very spoilery discussion of Solo, the next in a Star Wars franchise, because we've all been to see it and we all have some thoughts, don't we, Daniel? Yes, we do. Beforehand, I was concerned. I had no idea if it was going to be good or not. That concern stayed with me right up until the film started. Heard about a job. Big shot gangster putting together crew. I'm a driver. And I'm a flyer. I waited a long time for a shot like this. It's completely inconsequential, but it's really good fun when you're watching it. And I came out of the cinema quite, quite happy. So it's a thumbs up from me. It's a good film. 
whether it's a good Star Wars film, I don't know. I enjoyed it as a piece of fun. I don't think it was a story that desperately needed to be told in that universe. Not at all. I don't think we learn anything about Han Solo that we didn't know beforehand. And if anything, I was a bit disappointed that there was no character arc for Solo. Like it starts off as the fully formed character at the start of the film that we know from A New Hope. Mm-hmm. I suppose mm. it depends whether they were going for something to create these arcs or whether they were going for a bit of more throwaway fun. And also remember how badly Luke Skywalker not being what the fans expected went down. Mm. With certain sections of the fan base. <laughs> it just felt a bit of a checklist. He's got to yeah. meet Chewie, he's got to get the Falcon, he's got to do the Kessel Run. Mm. It felt, you know, they were just hitting the certain plot points because they had to. That is true, but also what was interesting is, though they did each of those things, they also did try and subvert them a little bit as mm-hmm. they went. For instance, he didn't win the Millennium Falcon when he thought he was going to. Yeah, I, like that. first time I saw it, I was fully expecting mm-hmm. that to happen mm-hmm. the first time he met Lando. And it was like, oh, yeah. he didn't win. Ooh. And even though you knew it was going to happen... Mm-hmm. At that point, you didn't quite know how it was going to happen. So they did manage to weave in little moments of subverting the predictability. And also things like shooting first. Mm. At least they didn't go, oh, that's when I learned I had to shoot first. They didn't spell it out in huge flaming capital Mm -hmm. letters. That was a nice little meta gag for the Star Wars fans, I think, wasn't it? Always shoot first. I hate you, I know. Yes, that that was great great as well. I regret more than before not having seen the Lord Miller version, though. Because I just, I think with a Star Wars film like this, you've got a bit more license to do something a bit off the wall, a bit mm-hmm. creative, a bit improvisational than you do with the main franchise. And I just really want to see that version. And I was just mm-hmm. a little bit, yeah, it's it's great, it's really good, but I'm, I'm, it's not stayed in my memory. From from listening to Ron Howard and how much of this is him towing the party line or not, I don't know. But he maintains that there's a lot of ad-libbing and improvising mm-hmm. that's still in the film, particularly from Phoebe Waller-Bridge and mm-hmm. Donald yeah. Glover as L3 and Lando. Yeah, that and scene um, with Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Amelia Clark when they're mm-hmm. talking about the sexual chemistry between herself and Lando and, you know, how does that work? It, it works. works. That, yeah. that was improv and that was Ron Howard doing that. Yeah, so mm-hmm. the thing going around at the time was because they're known for this very improv-y, try it a load of times and we'll use one. Yeah. approach, people may or may not have assumed or listened to rumours that that was the reason for it. From the sound of interviews with Ron Howard, it sounds more like they were veering out of control and they mm. didn't really know where they were going with a lot of it. Yeah, that was impacting on budget and yeah. shoots and overrunning. They didn't seem to know what the castle run was going to look like. They didn't seem to know who the head of Crimson Dawn at the end was going to be. There were mm. lots of gaps that 70% of the way through shooting, they still didn't know. Yeah. I think that was probably more worrying to Lucasfilm than Alden Ehrenreich going off script a few times. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's a casting script, isn't it? Yeah. So I would yeah. imagine... It's his son, isn't it's it? It's a co-written... Lawrence. It's Lawrence and yeah. John. It's the, the one he really wanted to do. He, he wanted to sign on for Star Wars, yes, but as long as I can bring Han Solo back to the screen, right. I'll do and that. And that was before Disney bought Lucasfilm yes. yeah. as well. So Yeah, so he's very passionate about the character. One thing I'd like to talk about, because it really spoiled the film for me, was how dark it was. Yeah, you mean dark as in the screen was dark, as opposed to dark as in it goes to horrible places? I mean, dark as in you can't tell what the hell is going on. In the cinema I saw it in, they had emergency lighting that was too light, and so you didn't have black on screen. So it was really just between low grey and slightly brighter grey for a load of the scenes. People were just in silhouette. You couldn't see any expression on the faces. And it really didn't help the film at all. Was that 3D you saw it? No, it was 2D. And I went and talked to the manager of the cinema afterwards because I thought it was important that movies aren't shown that way, really. And it had been a slight problem in Deadpool two weeks before in the same cinema. I've heard more widespread reports of Solo, though. I think it was a choice by the cinematographer to make it as dark as possible. Apparently there is a standard brightness of lighting that cinemas are supposed to adhere to. And he shot it in low light but it should look perfectly clear. But cinemas are trying to save money by running the bulbs less bright, and they're also not... In the projector. In the projector, yeah. Mm. And also not switching the lenses between 3D and 2D films, and we're lucky we've got a great cinema in Newcastle called the Townside Cinema, and I saw it there, and it was perfect. I didn't have any problems whatsoever. Mm. But that's a a proper old-school independent cinema where they look after their projection equipment. So I think blaming the DP is a bit unfair. 
I saw it at Silverlink in the big mm-hmm. big multi-complex there. And, and it was, yes, mm-hmm. it was dark moments, but it, it was perfectly watchable. But if the fact is that cinemas aren't all perfect, then it is a problem. And certainly on Reddit and things, there have been a lot of people complaining about the same thing. You saw it uh, yesterday, Ian, so it's quite fresh in your mind. What did you think? I saw it yesterday uh, morning, 11am, mm-hmm. um, slightly hungover, I must admit. Just me and one of the guys in this huge multiplex. I was absolutely suckered by it. I loved it. I absolutely adored it. I know it was just uh, one for the fans full of all the stuff we expect, like the Kessel Run and how Chewie meets Han and gets his gun for the first time and that. I absolutely adored it. It satisfied the little boy in me. I was on the edge of my seat during the Kessel Run. I just loved it just because I knew it was going to happen and I just wanted to see the Kessel Run. And some of the humour in it I just was brilliant. My favourite line in the whole film is from um, Woody Harlson, who turns to the Wookiee and says, keep your paws where I can see them. <laughs> Which I thought was just a brilliant line. I just loved also, it. Also, yeah. what the other person in the cinema said to you. Yes. <laughs> You'll never have a better yeah. night's sleep than yeah. uh, curled up in a Wookiee's lap. Yeah, yeah apparently. <laughs> yes, I, I, that was it. I liked when you got back to the relationship between Han and the Wookiee, where you don't actually know what the Wookiee's saying, but you judge it all from Han's reactions. Yeah. I think that's a really yeah. nice that's thing. I like the fact he attempted to speak Wookiee when he first meets him. Yeah. That's very that's funny. Yeah. That's very, I loved it. The yeah. shower scene as well. I thought we couldn't do this by ourselves. <laughs> it was just—it was a really good romp, dead worth the money. Um, yeah. Yes, it doesn't expand the universe really at all, but it gave me everything I wanted. What, what do we think the roles of these uh, sort of non-saga movies should be? To me, they should be filling out different things. There should be different ways of looking at the world. It makes sense for them to have different what attitudes. I, what I felt coming out of this one, having loved it and wanting more, was you could do a lot with the five crime syndicates. Mm-hmm. Um, veering away from galaxy-ending warfare with the Empire and the First Order and whatever, I could imagine them doing a series of Star Wars syndicates with Crimson Dawn and the Huts and the Pikes mm. all going at each other in a kind of more underworld, organised, crimey yeah. part of the galaxy. I'd be quite happy with that. I would too. The only part of the film that disappointed didn't disappoint me, but I just thought, oh, really? It was when old um, Darth Maul turns up at the end. I think, oh, you had to, you had to shoehorn some force in there, didn't you? Yeah. And he even gets his lightsaber out and waves it around. Just <laughs> it said it wasn't obvious. Yeah. So it's like, oh, God. I got the impression loads of people loved that. Apparently it wasn't obvious. I've heard loads of people confused and thinking this takes place just after The Phantom Menace or before The Phantom Menace, despite the fact The Empire are in it. You have to read the comics, don't you? Or the cartoon series to yeah. find out that he survived yeah. and got his robot yeah. legs. I, I will admit that took me out of the film a little bit because I haven't watched any of the Rebel series or read the comics. Um, so it was a genuinely surprising moment. But I was doing a bit of mathematics and not actually paying attention to the rest of the film. So I was trying to work out yeah. at what point Darth Maul got killed. Yeah, I think there was a little bit of an assumption that most of the people who would see this would yeah. already know about. It's universe shrinking as well, which I, I really hate. You've got this massive universe with hundreds of stories to tell, but everybody somehow has to know everybody else and be connected. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of a shame that Maul is the villain that people were coming out talking about, because mm. I thought Paul Bettany was a really good charismatic villain. Great, yeah. He was a reshoot character, wasn't he? He I was. Um, it was going to be Michael K. Williams from The Wire, mm. but apparently he was going to be mocap. He was going to be an alien. I yeah. really like yeah. Michael right. K. Williams. He's great. But I'm quite glad that they went with a much more human-looking person. No, it was, he was a great baddie, I thought. Really good. Mm-hmm. Very menacing. Yeah. Yeah, he does creepy very well, Paul Bettany. And the way he could just turn from super, super charm to I will stone cold kill you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I never asked twice. Mm. Yeah. Would doing it not as mocap be a cost reduction exercise? Because apparently it's now something like the ninth highest budgeted movie Maybe. ever made. Um, About 300 million, I think it costs in the end through the reshoots. It's the most expensive Star Wars film, mainly because of the reshoots, but it's also the smallest scale Star Wars film, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I wonder whether this could be another thing that maybe Lord Miller hadn't quite decided what Michael K. Williams' character was going to look like. We know there's a precedent for that in mm-hmm. Star Wars. Andy Serkis had no idea what Supreme Leader Snoke was going to look like till The Force Awakens came out, virtually. So. Jabba the Hutt was a Scottish man in a fur coat. Yeah. He was. Dave Prowse had no idea he wasn't going to be the voice of <laughs> no. Darth Vader. Indeed. Mm. I tell you what, also I, I really liked about the film was that there was a, lots of practical effects going yeah. on. Loads of practical... You know, the CGI was fairly invisible pretty mm. much most of yeah. the time. You know, um, I love the realisation of Corellia. Mm. The Lady industri- Proxima. Yeah. The, um, she was great. Mm. Uh, you know, the industrial city. All those worlds were thought were really well realised and the, the CGI, apart from the train mm. chase scene, was, uh, mm. was, was kept to a real minimum. Oh, and also they gave Warwick Davis a few extra quid. That was nice. Yeah, yeah good. Um, can I give a shout out to the little droid who, after he got freed, was just stomping along happily on the control <laughs> panels? <laughs> that yeah. was genius. I thought Sandy Newton was wasted. Yes. Thought, uh, yeah. yes. that, that was yeah. what I was going to move on yeah. to because I thought um, Kira, in a way, I, d- 
I didn't think her arc was very good either, really. She didn't come back changed. She was saying, oh, I've done terrible things. And yet you didn't really see it in her. I think I did. Um, I, I could kind of... Obviously, I couldn't see her face. So <laughs> I've done terrible things. I made Terminator Genesis. <laughs> but yeah, I thought Tandy Newton was wasted almost as much as Gwendolyn Christie in the uh, mm. in their saga yeah. movies. I'm yeah. not entirely sure that Tandy Newton needed to die as well. Mm. I didn't quite get that. It was to create a vacancy in the team. That was the only reason mm. she died. There was one more fanboy thing I really wanted to happen, and it didn't. Which, and it really, it really depressed me actually when I came out of the film. Yeah. <laughs> well, we didn't get to see Chewie get his arrow gun. It's Bowcaster. Yeah. So I was expecting him to pick one mm. up somewhere and go. Well, this will do. He hasn't got his bandolero either. Mm. Do you think it's a bit weird that Han Solo basically steals what remains of the corpse of Lando's dead lover at the mm. end of the film? <laughs> there could well be scope for Lando to rebuild her somehow. Perhaps mm. she is the computer inside Lobot's head in Cloud City. Perhaps. And that's why he doesn't talk, because if he opened no, his no. mouth, he'd sound like <laughs> No, But it relates because, you know, the, the robot's consciousness gets melded with yeah. the Millennium Falcons and that's quite good because in Star Wars A New Hope he keeps saying come on girl he talks to her as a, as a woman doesn't he so yeah. that feeds back quite nicely I did really enjoy Lando yeah. oh yeah. definitely yeah. Very I'd, much. I'd like to see more of him more of as him, a sort of space Lothario that was kind of fun great selection of capes yes <laughs> <laughs> and his sort of bachelor pad on the Millennium Falcon that was kind of cool it's interesting actually when people say like, how much improvisation there was and stuff that the two liveliest characters were the two played by writers so when Donald Glover's a writer and um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Yeah. Mm. I enjoyed the robot, but I also feel we're seeing a lot of similar type of robots in these mm. movies. Yeah, I, I really liked her, but she felt a little bit like a reaction to how much people liked K2 mm. in Rogue One and want something similar. Not to say I didn't like L3. Mm. They tried to do something a little bit different with the equal rights, things like that. Yeah, mm. Who was L3's voice? Phoebe Waller-Bridge from yeah. Leabag. I would love to see her as an actor in the film rather than mocap. Mm. I think I'd love to see that. Mm. Oh, another thing I really enjoyed was that carrying on the tradition of strange creatures singing in canteens. Yes. Mm. Little great. green guy in the jar. In the jar, he was fantastic. That's going to be uh, the next spin-off movie. Well, mm. I have read the official guide, uh, the book, and he does have a backstory. Of course um, he does. He, he had, had a long and glittering career as a lounge singer, but had fallen on hard times. So when Paul Bettany's character paid him to be his in-house singer on his yacht he leapt at the opportunity and is currently undergoing a career resurgence <laughs> that's official that's canon the the other featured wookie or very briefly featured who mm. says goodbye to him was um anthony daniels or, no it wasn't it wasn't, it wasn't. So. Was it not? no anthony daniels is apparently on screen so listening to the empire spoiler podcast this morning and that had an interview with ron howard and he was saying that they wanted to put anthony daniels in a very obvious place in the film. But I completely missed it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I think, I think mm-hmm. second time I mm-hmm. saw it, Chewie is about to get on the Falcon with his other Wookiee friend, and you do see a human who could well have been Anthony Daniels go, mm-hmm. other Wookiee's name, over here, <laughs> yeah. come help. I thought other Wookiee was very badly done. It was a bit too skinny in it. and it, mm. He's been enslaved. He's in a, he's in a bad <laughs> way. He looked a bit cheap. It looked like they couldn't afford any more costume. <laughs> yeah, 12 Probably years couldn't. of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can tell it's not the original um, Chewie. I've, I've I can tell blank. that too. Surely he's much younger, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but the walk's different. The, the physicality is different. Well, you, it's get, not you quite... walk different in your old age. You're mm. a bit more hunched. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know it's the same thing in um, Last Jedi, though. So I think, it's a, I think it's a different actor, which is surprising because it's a man in a massive costume. But I, I, I can just tell it's not mm. quite the same... Yeah, what was nice, uh, Anthony Daniels uh, wrote a tweet after the film came out going, I've finally been sent to the Spice Mines of Kessel, uh, <laughs> referencing uh, the first mention of that in the originals. But so, I think um, I've heard Jonas Suetomo, who plays mm-hmm. Chewie now, he's got a very big athletic background, which I think just means his body language is totally different to Peter Mayhew. How many Wookiee lap dances would you give it <laughs> oh, wow. out of ten? <laughs> I would give it a good... Eight Wookiee lap dances. Mm-hmm. I would agree with eight Wookiee lap dances, and I'll throw in a bonus, Enfus Nest, because I thought she was awesome. I'm going to give it seven and a half. I don't know how you can do half a lap dance, but I will report back. <laughs> <laughs> Just the bottom half, please. Yeah. <laughs> I would give it seven Wookiee lap dances, but I wouldn't pay the Wookiee extra to go back to my place afterwards. <laughs> I'd uh, I'd give it an eight based on what I think happened that I couldn't actually see. <laughs> <laughs> the Wookiee lap dance. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, well, what do you know? 
acid test, do we want them to do a sequel to it? Yes, please. Yeah. Um, I don't want a solo sequel. I want a sequel featuring that underworld. Yeah, um, in which Solo could make an appearance, but it not be all about him. And certainly Lando could. Yeah. We haven't really talked about the main actor and how he coped. <laughs> Which says a lot. Yeah, how he coped um, with adopting a young version of Han Solo. Um, yeah. I, I quite enjoyed yeah. it. I yeah, was, I I was perfectly happy with yeah. it. Lots of charm, lots of charisma. He's not Harrison Ford, but I don't no think he is. was trying to be. I certainly thought he embodied the spirit. There were moments when you go, oh yeah, there he is. Body language is. is very and good. And the voice, um, just little moments I thought, yeah, I can believe that. But he was never Han Solo to me. Oh dear. Another three films. You'll get used to it. <laughs> Yeah, I've kind of changed my characteristics as I've gotten older. So the evolution from what he was playing now to getting to Harrison Ford's level of charisma, I can believe that. Yeah. I also liked how he got his name. No, no I did no. not. I like, no. I quite like that. <laughs> I was expecting worse, um, certainly. The whole audience groaned in the cinema when I saw it. I groaned as well, but in a, a pleasurable way. Because <laughs> oh, the man next to me was there. Uh, <laughs> Give me me some wookie lap dance, yeah. Had his paws in your lap. (laughs) That brings us to the end of another Nerdfest podcast. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Remember, you can check us out on social media at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. And you can also get some merchandise from redbubble.com. But until the next episode, you have been listening to... Dan Watkins. Ian McLaughlin. Peter Johnson. Don't want to close my eyes. (laughs) Don't want to fall asleep because I'll miss you, babe. And I don't want to Yeah, that's what you should have done. Yeah, if you'd sung it, it would definitely got voted away. If you'd sung it... it It'd be fine. He we'll see you in near jail, John. Kiss her clo- <laughs> Listen to the fucking lyrics of the song. He wants to kiss her closed eyes while she's asleep. Imagine having a nice little kick. I'm waking up. <laughs> <laughs>Far from the worst thing he's probably yeah, done. Yeah, but you don't know where that tongue's been. He's been going down in an elevator. He's been walking in a funny way. With Oh, dear. <laughs> walking in a funny way. <laughs> hey, Harry. Yeah, right. You know, we're sitting on four million pounds of fuel, one nuclear weapon, and a thing that has 270,000 moving parts built by the lowest bidder. Oh, makes you feel good, doesn't it? Yeah. I could stay awake just to hear you breathing. Watch your smile while you are sleeping, while you're far away and dreaming. I could spend my life in this sweet surrender. I could stay lost in this moment forever. Every moment spent with you is a moment I treasure. Don't want to close my eyes. I don't want to fall asleep. Because I miss you, baby. And I don't want to miss a thing. Because even when I dream of you, the sweetest dream will never do. I still miss you, baby. And I don't want to miss a thing. No further evidence needed.